0: back to another episode of The Advantage. I am your host, Michael Fiddle. Today is Sunday, May 28th, and on today's podcast, we are going to break down Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. We are going to preview how we are going to approach Game 1 of the NBA Finals. We are going to include a lot of strategy in this slate breakdown. This is going to be a cross between a great strategy episode and a slate breakdown. I'm going to use the live lines to help explain a lot of gambling theory and gambling logic stuff. So this actually might go into the portfolio of the series of strategy episodes that we've been building out. Before we get into all of that, let me remind you guys to follow me on Twitter at mfiddle14 and to please drop a written review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And also, before we get started, I do. I know we don't normally on this podcast review what happened in the previous games, but that game six Celtics heat was absolutely crazy. And I feel like I need to take like two minutes to quickly talk about it. That's why I love basketball. I always say nothing surprises me. However, that one was fucking shocking. Of course, this was the game where Derek White has the tip in with one-tenth of a second left to put the Celtics over the Miami Heat in Miami to force a Game 7 coming back from the 0-3 deficit to force a Game 7 at home, trying to be the first team in NBA history with 150 other examples of teams down 0-3 and not coming back in the series. The Celtics now try and be the first team in 151 tries to come down from 3-0 and end up winning this series. So we will see if they can get that job done tomorrow night. But before we get there, let's quickly review like this series of events because it was so wild that I think we should all just take a moment to understand the complexity that was the last few seconds of that Celtics-Heat game. And then we'll get into Game 7 and a bunch of strategy and some gambling stuff. However, let's start with Spolstra not calling a timeout when Marcus Smart misses the free throw. So Marcus Smart has a chance to put the Celtics up three with a few seconds left, ends up missing one of the free throws. They end up only going up two. I think the score was 101 to 99 at the time. Don't don't worry about the score too much. But Marcus Smart puts the Celtics up two and misses a free throw in which Spolstra and Jimmy Butler are literally communicating during Smart being at the line, being like, should we call a timeout? And you would think that one of the league's best coaches, perhaps the league's best coach, probably in my opinion, would want a chance to say, let me draw up a play and let me get my team into a good position to have a chance at a game tying or potential game winning shot. Instead, Spolstra and Butler are literally communicating during the free throw and talking about how they're going to go no timeout. Okay, so then Jimmy secures the rebound or gets the outlet pass, starts dribbling up the court, goes to the corner. Now, this is generally not a wise thing to do in basketball to dribble yourself into the corner. Jimmy, who's an incredibly heady player, does something pretty unwise. He's met there by Al Horford, who is a centerpiece of this Celtics defense as being such a smart defender. So, Jimmy puts himself in an unwise position and is met by one of the Celtics' most heavy defenders in one of the league's best defenses. However, Jimmy gets Horford to bite on a three, gets him to get fouled, and gets three free throws. While they're down two with, at this point, on the clock, 2.2 seconds left. Now, that's kind of important. Right now, Joe Mazzula instantly challenges. It's seconds left. He has two timeouts left and still has his challenge. So it's literally a what the fuck, why not, I'm just going to use my challenge, screw it moment. Maybe Butler stepped on the line, maybe, who knows? There was no reason not to challenge the play because you were going to call a timeout, so might as well use the challenge that is included with the timeout. And even though the challenge was a heat of the moment, fuck it, why not moment, That challenge ends up putting three seconds back on the clock instead of 2.2. So they add eight tenths of a second to the clock. Jimmy ends up sinking three for three free throws. Now, despite a game where Jimmy couldn't buy a fucking bucket, he becomes a stone cold killer at the line. Three for three, very underrated, that we're like, not probably not going to talk about how badass hitting all three of those free throws are. Then the Celtics call a timeout. They advance the ball. They draw up a play. The first looks to Tatum. The second looks to Brown. The third look is to Marcus Smart. The Heat cut off the first two looks. Bolstra, being the best coach that he is, had his guys in good defensive positions to cut off the we-don't-want-Tatum-or-Brown-to-beat-us moments. So Derek White is the inbounder. He gives the ball to Marcus Smart. Let's take a 20-second timeout here. And let's go back in time to game five of the Philadelphia Celtics series when Marcus Smart literally makes the game winner, but it's released a tenth of a second too late and it doesn't count. So Marcus Smart in this playoffs has already been in a situation where he had a chance at a game winning shot. The ball actually went in the hoop, but it didn't count because he didn't get it off in time. So here, Derek White. Gives Smart the ball with three seconds left. Smart certainly isn't going to let that shit happen to him again. He puts that ball up immediately. Derek White, who quickly flashed to an outlet pass for Smart, dashes to the cup because Smart released that ball quickly. Because Missoula challenged the play and got eight-tenths of a second added on, Derek White had enough time to secure the rebound and quick touch it in and make a game winning shot to save the Celtics season. It was an absolutely wild play. I was on the edge of my seat the entire fourth quarter. It's one of those games where you pay for the whole ticket. You only need the edge of your seat. It was the culmination of a series of sliding door moments. I felt like if one thing, if any little thing happened differently, all of those things that I just explained, we are in a different world today. And here we are going to game seven. And we're going to break down and talk a lot of strategy through it. What a crazy fucking sequence. And that is why I love basketball. And I know we don't generally talk about what has happened in the past. But that moment and that culmination of events was just a little too wild for me not to talk about. Okay. There are three, I think three, points of strategy that I want to talk as we break down game seven and start to preview a potential game one of the NBA Finals. Let's start when we start doing slate breakdowns, how we generally always do with noting what the opening lines for these games were. When I'm starting to handicap a situation, one of the most critical pieces of information is what were the opening lines? And for me personally, I know a lot of people like to ask me, Mike, where do you check what the opening lines were? I find a lot of the free services generally when they're Uh, pulling opening lines have some discrepancies. I don't always find the information to be that great. Maybe they're pulling it from DraftKings instead of FanDuel and FanDuel might have given a better number or maybe two books pop up within seconds of each other and they grab the one that popped up first instead of the best number even though the opening line, you know, it's just, it's a tough situation to tell. So when I'm generally doing these things, I like to use my own eyes. Those are my most trusted sources. I actually like to see the number pop up on the board. I like to take a screenshot of it so I have it for my records. So DraftKings releases a 208.5 total and a spread of eight and a half. Now I'm waiting. I'm watching. I'm waiting. I got my Caesars book up. I got my points bet book up. I got my FanDuel book up. I have my other very low level books that pretty much never release lines in time, up as well, just in case. And I see the next thing that comes on the board, actually, before anything comes on the board, I see DraftKings move the line from 208 down to 206 and a half immediately. So, two points of movement towards the under. Of course, we have a game seven situation. So, just game seven unders, elimination games unders. Those are a major, major trend in the NBA. Uh, it was pretty rest assured that we were going to get movement towards the under wherever this line dropped because we know that the public is going to hammer or just bettors are going to hammer a game 7 under situation because of the history of the data. So uh DraftKings drops it from 208 to 206. FanDuel comes online and puts it right at 206 as well. If FanDuel had put it up at 206 and a half while DraftKings was already at 208 and a half, I would have taken the DraftKings 2.8 and half, and I would have absolutely slammed it. However, now we were at 2.06 and a half. There was a big correction in the market. There was not a lot of indicators that the, it was going to keep going. So I jumped on it for a half a unit thinking, okay, I think these are going to continue to trend down, given all the fact of the game seven unders that I just talked about. We already have movement towards the under. However, I only played it for half a unit because I've been playing... 213 and a half, two t- under 212, under 216 and a half. We've even played over two fourteen and a half and a half in this series. So then to just drastically, just because it's a game seven elimination game, especially with the Heat who shoot a ton of threes, Celtics who shoot a ton of threes, both of these teams historically pretty damn efficient from behind the three-point line. So just because the line arbitrarily moves down like eight or nine, 10 points to a 206 and a half, wasn't giving me a position where I want to slam the number, but I still played the under because I was confident that the CLV, the closing line value, was still going to trend in that direction. Now, at this very moment, and here's where we start getting into the, the strategy component of it, of course, I'm giving you guys my first bet. My first bet on this board was the under 206.5 for half a unit. Then FanDuel has the heat at plus 9 Everywhere else has it at plus eight and a half, and the total is moving down. So this is the first point of strategy that I really want to talk about, is correlating spreads and totals. If you see, and this is a perfect, perfect example, if you see a total be as low as 206 and a half, of course, if we're betting NBA games, you know most of these lines are around 220, right? Right? These heat Celtics matchups have been roughly around 214. The Lakers Nuggets series was hovering around 225. So to have a 206 on the board, and PS, by the way, right now, it's 203. So 28 and a half, 206 and a half, 203. like whatever number you want to use, opening line, where I bet it or now the current line, we are way lower than expected in our total. On the flip side of that, we have a relatively high spread. The the line dropped at heat plus nine. I've talked about on this pod many of times about key numbers in the NBA and how the four most common outcomes of NBA games are seven, five, six, and eight in that order. So if you're taking a plus nine, you have the four, and nine is not the fifth most common outcome. I'm just I'm not going to get into it, but you have at least the four most common outcomes on your side of the number and a very low total. So if we start to compare, what are the common outcomes of this game? How many points are expected to be scored in this game? So this is a game where the line is 203 and the trend is going under. So let's say that There's 202 total points scored. There's 198 total points scored. There's 187 total points scored in this game. The lower you get with that number, there is a direct effect on the realistic outcomes of the spread. The less total points that are scored in the game, it makes it harder for the Celtics to cover a big spread. That should be pretty straightforward common sense, right? With more points scored in a game, there are simply more possibilities for the Celtics to open up a bigger lead. So seeing a heat plus nine on the board, knowing the value of the key numbers of eight, seven, six, five, four, three, all those, knowing that the the line was moving from 208, to 206, to 205 and a half, to 204 and a half, to 203 and a half, to 203. I think it even flashed at 202 and a half at points bet. So we are taking in all of this information, knowing that the last few games have been priced around 214, 213. There's a drastically lower spread and total. So if the under is your strongest play, you actually don't have to directly play the under. You can play the heat plus nine and say, well, these are directly correlated and I'm actually getting a better number. I'm getting closer to the opening number on the plus nine or if you take the plus eight and a half as opposed to the reduced value that's hit the totals market already. You can correlate what is the number in the spread and how does that have a realistic outcome On the total or for this one, we're using the total to indicate possible outcomes for the spread. Now, if this was a Kings Warriors game like we had earlier in the playoffs where those spreads were around one and two and the totals for those games was like 237 really high totals really low spreads. You can throw this shit out the door. Like, it doesn't make the Kings more likely to cover a two-point spread if they're... Like, it doesn't matter. That is so minute it's irrelevant. However, it's not common that we get a spread as high as nine. That's clearly on the higher end of NBA spreads. And it's very rare we get a total as low as 203. I mean, this might be... The lowest total, the second lowest lowest total, I remember all year. The only other one potentially being Game 7 Celtics uh, Sixers last round, which I think ended at 2.04 and a half. I'm not sure. So, I mean, I meant the line ended at, of course, the the smart people understood that I didn't mean the literal game ended at 2.04 and a half. I think the game ended at 200, which means Game 7 under hit again just last round. So... You can't really get much lower than this in the total, and you couldn't really get too much higher than this in the spread, so you can correlate those positions. You can say Heat plus 9 and under 203 are directly correlated because if there's 176 points scored in this game, it's going to be really hard for the Celtics to win by 10. That makes sense? There's push and pull to this. It it very much works in football as we start to approach football season. You're going to hear me talk about this all the time, taking a, you know, a nine-point dog and an over-under is 46 and a half. Give me the nine-point dog every time. Like, come on. Unless I'm taking the over in that game, then I would stay away. But if I'm taking the under, I'm definitely taking the dog, too. You could correlate those, and you could add some exposure, and that's generally a very profitable strategy. Okay. What is the other thing that I wanted to talk about? Um, Oh, the prop market. I also played Jason Tatum's under 31 and a half prop. It is now juiced to minus 128 on FanDuel. I would look for better odds. I got it at minus 115. If it's juiced out to minus 128, I would be scared of taking it. Of course, this just directly correlates to everything that I've been talking about. Correlate now becomes the most common word used on this podcast episode, Um, if you have under 203 total points, it's simply going to be hard for a guy like Tatum to score 32, right? And the reason, let's, let's dig a little deeper into that. Tatum is going to play more minutes than he, like, it's, you can't really go back to a random game in the season where maybe there was a really low total outcome. They scored less than 200 points. So let me see how many points Tatum had in that game. Because Tatum probably played 32 minutes in said game. Or maybe didn't play at all or whatever. Maybe he was in foul trouble and played 26. Tatum's probably going to play 44 minutes. So even though the the game total is going to be lower, his opportunity and volume share is going to be higher than normal. So maybe he actually has more opportunity. I don't know. It's tough. You don't want to overly expose yourself into these things. Remember that we have a thing of maximum exposure It's three units for me. I have half a unit on the Tatum under. I have half a unit on the game under. And I have three quarters of a unit on the Miami Heat plus nine. So that's a total of a little less than two units. Of course, clearly the way I'm speaking, they are all relatively pinned to the same basketball and gambling take that this is going to be a game that goes under. If the game goes under, then I'm likely probably going to hit most of these bets or at least two out of three of them then correspondingly, like, that's how I'm positioning my exposure. I don't want to – when I say maximum exposure, it's not on one line. It's not necessarily on one game. It's really on one betting take. So my take for this particular game isn't under position. So I would only want to put three units or 3.3 to win three if I'm pegging minus 110 lines on a general under position. There's times where I'll maybe slam a three unit on an under and then play a side two because it might be one of those warriors King situations where it's the, the sides and the totals aren't correlated. So I'm not playing the same angle for the game. You don't want to get yourself into a position where you think you have a brilliant read on what the, what the game is, but like, This is professional sports. This is professional athletes. We're gambling on the way an inflated ball is going to bounce off a rim and through a little hoop. Like, there's a lot of unpredictability about this. So you never want to get caught feeling too strong about a bet, and therefore you don't ever want to have too much exposure. We always say jabs at the market. I am going to do a coming-up episode – about bankroll management and arbitrary deadlines because I feel like that's a good topic for right now. Um, Okay, two other strategy points that I wanted to hit. One, some of you guys may or may not have noticed that I put money on Jimmy Butler to win Eastern Conference Finals MVP, and I put money on Jason Tatum to win Eastern Conference Finals MVP. So I just wanted to explain... The Jimmy Butler was a plus 400 bet with one unit on it, so one unit to win four. Conversely, the uh, Tatum was minus 180 taken before game one. I took the Jimmy Butler when the Heat were up 3 1 against the Knicks, and I noticed in the Eastern Conference Finals MVP odds uh, Harden, Embiid, Brunson, Randall, Tatum, Brown, And Butler were the top names. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Heater up 3 1. So I think we can safely cross off Brunson and Randall. And then on the other side, either Harden and Embiid or Tatum and Brown had to be crossed off because only one of those teams were going to win the series. So I jumped on the Jimmy Butler plus 400 when I noticed that there was definitely value in the fact that five of the seven names were definitely going to be crossed off as we moved forward. And then before game one, I jumped in on Jason Tatum minus 180 to be the Eastern conference finals MVP for the Boston Celtics. Now, if you had asked me before game one, Mike, Who do you think is going to win this series, and who do you think is going to win Eastern Conference Finals MVP? I would have told you I think the Celtics are going to win the series, and I think Jason Tatum is going to win Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Then you would have looked at my bets and you said, Mike, why do you have a situation where you profit 1.3 units if Jimmy Butler wins and only half a unit if Tatum wins, even though you just said you think it's going to be Tatum? Why would you tilt your exposure towards Butler? Why wouldn't you have put three and a half units on Tatum? To which I would say, and let me reply, respond, reiterate, probably said this a gazillion times. I don't play my basketball takes. I don't I don't know who's gonna win in this game seven Heat Celtics. I just think that nine. Is a big number when the spread is 203. So I don't know if it's going to be Butler or Tatum. And the reason why I'm skewed towards Butler is a numbers thing, is because before game one, there was a chance that Jalen Brown won Eastern Conference Finals MVP. There was a chance that Al Horford, that Marcus Smart, that Derek White. That's six man of the year, Malcolm Brogdon. There was a chance that Jason Tatum got hurt in game one and the Celtics still win the series and you could pick your poison of whoever you would choose. Right? So for that reason, even though I thought it was going to be Tatum or I thought it was going to be Butler, because I made the Butler bet first, remember I was just explaining how I took the butler when it was 3-1, and I noticed that five of the seven names were going to have to be crossed off eventually. So I placed the butler bet first, and then it was, okay, where do I add my exposure to work off of this? If I had added 3.5 units of exposure on Tatum, and then Tatum ends up getting hurt, and then the Celtics still win the series, or Jalen Brown just scores 35 points a game every game of the series and shoots 65 true shooting percentage and has the Devin Booker to Tatum's Kevin Durant moment. Like who would have been who would have been the MVP for the Suns if they had ended up beating the Nuggets in that series? It would have been Booker, right? So like it could have been Jalen Brown if he balled out. So if you think about it, if Tatum got hurt. Or if Tatum just simply wasn't the guy, and it ended up being Brown, even though my gut said Celtics, I would have been overexposed. I would have lost the three and a half units on Tatum and lost the one unit on Butler. The best way for me to have minimal exposure loss was to tilt my exposure gained towards Butler. And of course, if you're listening to this podcast 26 minutes in, I'm sure you've listened to plenty other podcasts that I've done. I'm sure you follow me on Twitter. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with my approach to gambling. It's low risk. It's jabs at the market. It's I'm not looking for big swings on let me max out my, you know, let me put all of the profit that I would have gotten on Butler and actually put it on Tatum to maximize my Tatum. No. I'm saying where's the smart way to position myself here? And in the moment, it was a tilted towards Butler moment. So when you're hedging – Always consider the situation where what happens if you lose all of it, right? You don't want to overexpose yourself to anything. In, in general, in hedging situations, you want to put yourself in a situation where you actually can, physically cannot lose. You want to open a positive middle. Of course, when you're picking off awards winners, unless you're picking every name, that's not possible. possible. But like if you were going to hedge off a finals ticket, you'd want to grab the other finals winner. Right, If you had a Nuggets finals ticket right now and you're saying, how do I hedge, which I do, I wouldn't be taking the Celtics or Heat right now at slightly better odds because if they get there and you get the right... Well, no. Just wait until you get to who that matchup is and then bet the other side because if you decide to hedge, and we just did an episode about choosing where to hedge, how to hedge, understanding... Do I want to hedge in this position given the fact of the way the market's moving? So uh, let's see. If I was on a Heat finals ticket, I would want to hedge because the market's going to move towards Denver. If I was on a Celtics finals ticket, I don't know if I would want to hedge right now because the Celtics is moving towards the Heat. I mean, towards the Celtics for um, Game 7. They're in a great position there. They have a 75% win chance at home. I don't think you'd want to hedge off of that. And then they're going to be favored versus the Nuggets. So I would think right now you'd want to hedge Nuggets if they end up playing the Celtics. So that's kind of the way I'm approaching my Nuggets 14 to 1. But that might start to get a little convoluted. And then the last thing for strategy that I wanted to talk about, because the the next time that I'll do a podcast episode will probably be going into game two. Or maybe Game 3, actually, because I have a visitor next weekend coming to visit me. One of my best friends. Shout out. Um, So I don't plan to do a podcast between Game 7 and Game 1 for the NBA Finals. Maybe I will. Probably not. But I can tell you right now, if the Nuggets end up playing the Celtics and the Nuggets have to travel on the road to Boston, we are probably going to get a great number on the Denver side. We are probably going to get the Denver at a slight underdog. Yeah. We are going to get the Celtics off a situation where they just played four straight elimination games. The sense of urgency is, you can't possibly maintain it. At the same time, you want to say, how can you fade the Celtics while they're this hot? I would say play into the rest advantage that I love in NBA situations and take the Nuggets against the spread in a big way if they are underdogs in game one against the Celtics. If they are home favorites against the Heat, it's going to be a big number. I'm probably still going to play it right at its line drop because it's probably going to move further out if you're just predicting trends betting and CLV probably gonna be money on the Nuggets if they're playing the Heat. But if that number comes out and it's nine and a half in Denver for a game one, that's gonna to be tough to to slam. So I'd be looking at like a you know half a unit, three quarters of a unit situation. If the Nuggets end up playing in Boston and are priced as an underdog for game one, it's it's a unit or a unit and a half right away. I don't know how I'm predicting the totals. I'll check the markets. I'll do some handicapping into some of the previous games and pace between these teams. Um, Yeah, and we are absolutely dominating this NBA playoffs. Before I sign off, let me just say a few things. Actually, you know what? I'll do it at the end of the season. Uh, I'll talk to you guys later this week. Remember, this episode was about strategy correlating totals and spread numbers. When you have a big spread and a low total, you know that the dog is correlated. If you have a low spread and a high total, maybe it's irrelevant, or maybe you can even flip it the other way and say maybe the favorite. It is an easier chance the favorite covers here. If you're attacking the prop market, consider what is the total in this game? How is the total trending? How can I pair big numbers in the totals prop market with low numbers in the totals game market? So I think that under Tatum... 31.5 is a good way to attack that. I would remember if you have any futures tickets, which ticket did you put in first becomes kind of your anchor to know how to hedge and how to start to work off and how to expose yourself. And remember, try never to leave yourself a situation where you could potentially lose all bets. And if that's unavoidable, as it was for me, unless I took every Celtic, unless I simply played the Celtics team spread, which the number really wasn't good. It was minus 550 going into that series with the heat. So it wouldn't have even covered the, the plus the 400 that I got on the Butler line. That's why I didn't do that. I, I could have done it that way. If the Celtics team series were minus 300, I probably would have just done that. I played the Tatum angle. Remember, you were anchored to your first bet. You are going to tilt your exposure towards not maximum earnings, but minimum potential losses. Hope that all made sense. This was a strategy episode, so listen twice if you need to. Enjoy Memorial Day and Game 7, and I will talk to you guys next week. As always, peace out.